0: Welcome to OB Boss Babes, where we showcase female entrepreneurs, working professionals, community builders, and Boss Babe biz owners that share their stories so that others can feel inspired, empowered, and connected to other women in business. We are the must-listen podcast for entrepreneurs throughout the Ottawa Valley, Lanark County, and the Pontiac. Here at our boss babes face behind the scenes, as we dive into real and brutally honest conversations about different industries, how women are smashing stereotypes, balancing motherhood, and are building successful businesses. This is OB Boss Babes. Downtown Carlton Place is pleased to announce the return of their iconic summer market event, Bridge Street Summerfest. Enjoy over a half a kilometer of shopping and entertainment in the heart of the Heritage Downtown Shopping District in Carlton Place, one of Canada's fastest growing communities. This year, they have a newly renovated streetscape and are introducing a new juried format. Artisans, makers, crafters, food, pop-up retailers, and vintage resellers provide an incredible selection of -of one-of-a-kind and unique items. The Summerfest Street Market will be punctuated by world-class entertainment from street performers and local musicians. Local businesses will also be set up on the street to add to the lively market atmosphere. Families can expect a range of entertainment for all ages, including face painting and balloon twisting, and so much more, along with a great selection of delicious treats and easy to carry food. Join us at Summerfest on Saturday, July 29th from 10 to three on Bridge Street in downtown Carlton Place from Town Hall to Lake Avenue. Hello, 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 and welcome to the OV Boss Babes podcast. OV Boss Babes' mission and goal is to empower women, and one of the ways that I want to do that is to bring awareness to working professionals in all industries that are helping to make a difference from mental health awareness to domestic violence and other related issues that affect women. And this local nonprofit organization provides safety, shelter, and support for women who have experienced domestic violence and raises awareness regarding its cause, prevalence, and impact. Lanark County Interval House and Community Support was founded in 1978 after a Canada work study found that women in Lanark County needed help to leave abusive partners. Members of the community banded together to build a space where survivors of abuse could find refuge. Since opening its doors in May of 1979, the organization has become a pillar of its community. Please welcome Erin Lee, Executive Director of Lanark County Interval House and Community Support to OV Boss Babes
1: podcast. Good day. So happy to be here.
0: Aaron, you have such an important role as executive director at the Lanark County Interval House. And I'm so curious about how you got into this role, into social services, and if you had any former career experience or education behind it.
1: That's a great question. Um, uh, I was a Toronto kid. I am a Toronto kid, uh born and raised in in the city. Uh my late dad used to say, Aaron. Uh, some people bring home stray animals and and the like, and Aaron brings home people. Uh, so I think from very early on I knew I was going to be in the people perspective and working with humans. Uh, I went to Centennial College in uh, Toronto and uh, took Child and Youth. My Certainly my forte and my experience was working with youth. I very quickly became connected to the women's community in terms of looking at women's rights and uh, equity rights and those things. And as a biracial queer woman, it uh, was really important for me to embrace um who I was and, and certainly look at how do you challenge the systems that be. Uh, I then, uh, you know, had my first child. I spent some time at York University uh, and after my first child was born, uh, we moved to Ottawa to be closer to my parents. And I became connected more and more to the women's community and started working at um, Interval House Ottawa. Uh, in 1992 uh, and stayed there for a significant period of time and then had the opportunity to come and work out here in Leonard County. And I seized the moment and uh, have been out here for 16 years now.
0: It's a great community to be a part of, for sure. Now, Aaron... I actually worked for a nonprofit organization that you might have heard of. It's called Community Living Upper Ottawa Valley. And I was very, very fortunate to work in the office and to see all the great work of our support staff to help individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, I was the executive assistant to the executive director. And so I can appreciate the amount of work (laughs) uh, that goes behind climbing that corporate ladder to become an executive director and get to the top but it's also as much as it's rewarding it's also it's challenging a lot of issues get brought to your attention a lot of weight is handed on your shoulders you're not just managing staff but you're you're running an organization and you're governed by by a board of directors as well so i mean every decision that you make it it really falls on you and your shoulders but i want to kind of hear a little bit more about your career and climbing that corporate ladder because nobody just lands a role of executive director right out of college or university i should say
1: It is true. Um, I spent lots of time working in residential treatment when I was in Toronto and I worked at CTYS, uh, working with kids who were youth who were in conflict with the law. And I think that um, often the challenge as an advocate or somebody who uh, experiences other people's injustice is that You need to figure out how to put yourself in a position to take action and sometimes you need to actually work from the inside and you need to forge that leadership role and that skill development and then you have to apply it uh, internally to change systems from the inside and be able to respectfully challenge politicians And, and so I um, naturally seemed to have some of that leadership quality, uh, certainly was very lucky with um, a boss babe that uh, passed away just 20 years ago, uh, Lee Allen Hayes, she was the executive director at Interval House Ottawa, and she was really quite supportive of um, my politics and my activism and the education I was doing with communities. And I think it really inspired me to challenge myself to say, hey, if you really want to cause a ruckus and you really want to make change from the inside, you better get yourself uh, a leadership role and you better figure out how to do that with a strong team of women behind you. And I have been so fortunate to land here uh, 16 years ago. We have a team of 39 advocates, uh, and they are amazing, strong, uh, tenacious women who uh, look at their boss who's saying, we now got to do this, and let's fight this, and let's move forward on this. And they're like, whatever my role is, in order to contribute to that, I want to do that because what matters most is the, the women and the children that we serve. And so that's kind of how I landed here. I negotiated with my family and my kids. I always worked two jobs. I worked at Family Services Ottawa part-time. I taught at the at Algonquin College. I still am a member of the Victimology Advisory at Algonquin College. And you really uh, develop a portfolio that uh, fills your cup uh, and helps you develop the skills that you need to get out there um, and take that readiness with confidence. Um, and you gain that level of expertise and are recognized in your community. Uh, I was recently appointed to the Ontario Domestic Violence Death Review Committee uh, for a two-year term. And um, I'm very honored to be appointed to that committee and doing that very hard work for the province and I feel like I can make that contribution and I can certainly ensure that the rural lens of what happens to people in the in rural communities is is really brought to light.
0: Erin, you mentioned working amongst a a bunch of strong-willed and strong-voiced women and uh, if we're going back in history I mean the organization was founded in, in 1978 and then finally opened its doors a year later in 1979 but it was because of women speaking up and advocating that a shelter was needed. So prior to Lanark County Interval House, were there any other emergency shelters for women and children in Lanark County?
1: There were not in Lanark County, no. This is the first and this is the only. Uh, safe seeking refuge for women and children fleeing violence in this entire county. Uh, we've been around for a very long time, so forty-five years or so. But I would one hundred percent agree with you. Uh, Leonard County Interlodge was open on the backs of volunteers. It was volunteers who recognized there's something going on, and and women need to be safer, and we need to do something about that. And there is a place called the Hub, and the Hub works uh, is works out of Almont. Um, And they kind of took on this notion and this idea and embraced the need for an entity, for a place for women and women to seek safe refuge. And with the hub and some of our founding mothers, uh, they created this amazing place and it's evolved and it's changed over the years. Uh, But certainly the foundation of the agency remains intact. The foundation is about uh, imparting support to victims of violence and their children um and forging ahead to the toward the eradication of violence against women and girls um and gender diverse folks across our province across our community and across the world
0: and i really like that you guys have some history around Lanark County Interval House about how it was formed and created really by feminist advocates. Because again, like you were saying, Erin, I mean, it wasn't established, it wasn't, it wasn't a part of the community. And it was obviously something that was very much needed, and it's still needed today. So can you kind of tell me a little bit about the story, which I really like this little tagline of Lanark County Interval House and community support?
1: Sure. I think that in 19, between 1976 and 78, there were conversations. There were people, then there are still people today who take people into their homes to help them be safer until they can find a path for themselves. Uh, In 79, the doors opened to the first location. Uh, You know, a number of bedrooms, shared space, shared kitchen very communal living, um, shared bathrooms, um, but nonetheless, uh, forging ahead. Starts off, you know, fairly slow uh, as people are a little bit reluctant. What is that place? What is a crisis line? You know, how do we get there? What do we do? Is it really safe? And I think that the feminists who were leading this agency were really clear that small steps actually impact great change. And so then they forged through this this evolution and the numbers started to increase and the, and the community support uh, from politicians, from local folks really recognized that there was an issue. I think everybody in the late 70s into the mid 80s thought it was going to be like a short-term fix, mm-hmm. right? We just need to do this for a while until we can like fix this problem, and fix people and make it go away. Uh, And now we have, you know, 101 shelters for abused women and their children across the province of Ontario. So in terms of that evolution, it's huge. When shelters first started, they didn't have services for kids. They didn't recognize at the time that kids had their own experience of violence and, and were impacted. So if we forge ahead to around the 90s, Uh, there was a a forum, Uh, feminists and the like were having conversations about the issues of violence against women as more shelters had opened. And they started to talk about the issues for children. And lo and behold, then we actually had a liberal government who said, you know what, we're going to fund children's advocates in shelters. For every 10 beds, we'll give you one, one position. And so therein lies kind of the roots in the history of actually having services that were specific around children's experience of that harm. And then that started the kind of evolution of recognizing that whether or not you were directly uh, victimized, that all children who live in a home where there's violence are impacted. Mm -hmm. All children who witness violence are impacted. And then you can see how that infects laws. And when we start to look at the Divorce Act and we look at the family law system, when we look at... Uh, child and family services we start to like see the nuances of violence and how the nuances of our history of violence becomes really quite integral to making the best decisions and the best agreements and having the best outcomes come out of situations that are really really difficult where children are involved now you take us into the late 90s by then we're now talking about the fact that in rural communities lots of people don't come to the shelter Lots of people are reluctant to come to the shelter, but they really need support. So we started to institute outreach programs in the 90s where we were reaching out to women in community where they were at safely, as safe as possible. Um, And we started to grow that program. So we started to offer group services. We started then to evolve into having writers groups where we were encouraging different mediums. For women to use on their healing journey and that was really quite impactful and what we realized is there's more survivors or more folks living with violence in our community than we actually know about and being able to do that outreach piece has really been significant so that's evolved also when we think about where we are today. Um, And then when we think about where we started to progress to, we needed to become a little bit more political, right? We were always on the periphery of being political and ensuring that women's voices were heard. But we really started to nurture relationships and we started to nurture relationships with our local municipal council and the police services and, and folks that we didn't necessarily have. A happy, warm rapport with. Um, we started to look at how to challenge provincially a little bit more, and looking at how to be politically active beyond a province, and looking at more national action. And and certainly, the '90s really kind of sparred that. We gotta we gotta do stuff, band together, and be united. And I think the women's movement did really, really well up until the early 2000s. And I think things started to shift. And I think then this agency, being the only one in the rural community, really decided that we needed to really nurture relationships to build and grow our agency, to grow awareness. So we started investing in public education and we started investing in resource development and really looking at how do we partner Mm
2: -hmm. and how
1: do we collaborate with folks? Because as you mentioned earlier It could be that there are some mental health issues that are also involved in this domestic violence situation. There could be other inherently uh, trauma-related incidents that someone has grown up with, and they haven't had that opportunity to unpack any of that. So we started to look at how do we lean on each other in community and support each other, and I think it's been one of the most effective things in Lanark County in terms of outcomes for community members us being able to work really positively not perfectly uh but working positively to recognize okay we we have a shared client how do we support that client and recognize all of the nuances and all of the realities of that person's life
0: yeah at the starting of of your your long answer there you had mentioned that uh, that someone had said that, uh, that the intention for Leonard County interval house was to be temporary and that the services offered would eventually not be required. And that, that statement just, it really stuck with me there because isn't that like a beautiful dream to think that, you know, somebody back in the 1970s were thinking like, oh, just think, you know, in 10, 20 years, we won't even need services like this. We won't even need a shelter. But as we as we hear that and we think internally to ourselves, is it also really sad that in 2023 we are still experiencing domestic violence? It is still going on today. And I think you touched on some really important points that it's not just like in the moment that it's happening, but it's the trauma and and the abuse that happens later on in life that, you know... This is why there is a need for for therapy and counseling services and to be able to keep educating the public about it because it, it it's not going away and it doesn't just go away. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I want to kind of shift a little bit though, Erin, and talk about domestic stats because they're not exactly accurate as many, many victims don't even report their experiences to to authorities or even, like you said, even seek, even seek your services. Why is that?
1: I think that the reality is that while we have made great gains and improvements over the years in terms of how we respond to and how we validate victims' experiences, I think that systems have failed. I think systems have failed women. I think if you look at social media, if you look at media and you look at the way that high-profile situations involving uh, domestic violence or sexual violence how victims are re victimized, how victims are often blamed, how victims are devalued, how there is, we start at a baseline of disbelief and work backwards. I think that it makes sense for lots of victims to say, "Ah, uh, yeah, no, like I am not going through all of that. I'm not going to have my kids go through it and my family grow through that. Uh, to feel devalued and feel re-victimized. So I I, th- I think that that speaks to a lot of the reasons why people don't report. I think that there is a stigma still uh, attached to talking about or shedding light on the violence that people experience. I think there are generations of families, especially in rural communities, where people are like, you don't wanna speak out about that. You know, you don't want everybody to know and, and what that's gonna mean for our family. I think faith has become something that's an integral part of people's belonging to community. And I think that sometimes that influence um, either silences people or gives them the courage to just endure. Uh, I think that we've seen lots of systemic issues and while we're trying to work forward, we see a lot of times where the justice system fails, and so you know the person gets a um, a peace bond, uh, the offender gets uh, a warning. Uh, the so we we know that the seeking of justice really is something that needs to be unpacked by by and with and alongside victims to figure out what is it that you want. Uh, in the end, because if you want to live a life free from violence, um, you may choose this route instead of choosing this route. So I think that those are some of the reasons uh, that people don't report and that our statistics are not accurate. I think there are communities, cultural communities that are reluctant, uh, I think in terms of trust, I think in terms of stereotypes and profiles around various communities I think people don't necessarily want to endure that when they can endure what they can predict in terms of the incidents that happen and how they manage those is a sad reality. And it's changing. I'm not suggesting it's all bad and it's all negative. But I think that the question warrants a very fair response and a fair consideration of what happens to victims when they feel like I'm not going to be believed because You know, I've seen all of this stuff in the paper, despite the Me Too movement and lots of work we're doing, there is still that insecurity around, will somebody actually see my situation to fruition and I will receive justice? Mm
0: -hmm. Erin, when we hear the word violence, we immediately think of physical violence, right? Like, I mean, that's the first thing is when someone is physically hurting us. So they're infringing pain on us. So how can we determine what domestic violence looks like and what are the signs that we should be looking for, especially if the partner hasn't become physically violent?
1: I think that's a really good uh, point that you're bringing. And I really hope that listeners really embrace that notion, because I think that a couple of things that I I like people to think about is, you know, when we talk to kids about uh, the difference between physical and emotional uh, violence, we talk about inside hurting and outside hurting. Right outside hurting, you know, you see the bubble on somebody's knee and you know that they have a scrape because they fell off the bike inside hurting is something that takes a whole lot longer to heal and we don't see it. And I think that some of the things to be looking for um, are the roots, the roots of violence are about power and control. When somebody is all of a sudden not engaging uh, in regular activities that they used to engage in. When somebody is dressing differently. When somebody doesn't seem to have uh, the power to make their own decisions about going to an event or going to a concert or being with friends. Uh, When there starts to be more absenteeism in the friends group um, and more connection and everything is is done with the abuser, um, those are signs. Those are signs that there are some control issues happening in the relationship. Uh, When people are made to feel stupid, um, are told that they are crazy, uh, and that language starts to become part of the everyday norm, um, kind of the gaslighting effect, right? Uh, Somebody experiences somebody, something, and they start to unpack that, and the abuser immediately gaslights them and minimizes everything they've said, twists everything around um, and makes it feel like it's their fault and maybe they're not well uh, in terms of their mind and how they thought about it. Any of those pieces uh, are really important in terms of looking at what's happening in this relationship. And maybe it's time for me to reflect and make a different choice. Um, When I feel like I can't go for groceries uh, without accounting to my partner for the the money for the use of the bank card when all of a sudden uh, um, the independence i used to have around making informed choices is is compromised and my family sees it and my friends see it and maybe my neighbors see it it is important to open the door to that dialogue and that discussion um, because what we know is when we look at the issues of femicide Um, In many, many, many situations, either a neighbor, a friend or a family member knew Mm -hmm. that something was wrong. And we don't want people to carry that that responsibility. We can only do what we can do in terms of opening the door to dialogue to try to reach out. I really appreciated
0: that you touched on the word gaslighting because that word is becoming more than a dating buzzword, right? And it's it's really becoming progressive. And there's that automatic power imbalance in an emotionally abusive relationship, and gaslighting causes that as well. Um, another thing that I actually recently heard Erin on another podcast was the phrase "sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me." Throw that out the window, because again, mm-hmm. when we were touching earlier about trauma and uh, and how words really can impact our mental health and well being. It doesn't go away. And that phrase it's just such BS to me.
1: And it to think is that that's what, BS.
0: right. And to think that yeah. that's how we were that, that's how we grew up, especially for girls, you know.
1: I, I think that there is like some very deep-rooted, unfortunate truth to the gendered reality of how generations have um, socialize the gender, mm-hmm. right, in terms of what what we're supposed to do when we identify in a particular gendered way, and what was what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. And and you know, I know as a very strongly passionate um, political advocate that there are times when I reflect and I think to myself. Um, I think people felt that that was quite harsh. I think that if I identified as male gender, I don't think they would think it was harsh at all. I think they would think that it was assertive. Uh, but when it comes from somebody who identifies as female gendered, it's it's rather harsh, right? Uh, and I think we have to throw out gender norms. I think we have to recognize that gender is fluid, uh, and gender diverse people are among the highest percentage of people who are finding themselves affected by hate crime. There are thousands and thousands of hate crimes that have occurred uh, in 2022 into 2023. If you look at Agal's website, there are realities around how domestic violence enters gender diverse relationships as well. I think it's really important to recognize that as we travel the gender spectrum that um, a lot of the violence that happens in intimate relationships across uh, the 2 LGBTQIA plus community I think are not spoken about either in terms of that gap and that and that voice. I think that uh, a lot of times there's a lot of fear of repercussion. I think the notion of re-victimization is real on the ground and in the system. So I think a lot of the violence that's perpetrated in uh, gender diverse uh, relationships uh, is not something that's coming to the surface as, as much as we know it exists.
0: Mm-hmm. I really appreciate, again, as well, Aaron, talking about this topic, because it is still a common issue with intimate partner violence within the uh, LGBTQ2S plus communities. Now, do you think that domestic abuse is as or more common in same-sex relationships?
1: I would say that I don't think that it is as pervasive as it is in heterosexual relationships mostly as a result of the gender binary. I think in heterosexual relationships, the notion of power and control often in 96 percent of the cases being men who are perpetrating violence against women. I think the socialized right to power and control is still very dominant. I think it's very dominant in our popular culture in terms of the way that we view uh, relationships. I think that given the gendered lives and the gendered reality of the the kind of journey that people have been on in the 2 LGBTQIA community, I think that it is happening. I think it is happening at a lesser frequency at this point, based on the realities of, of just getting to be all of who you are. And I think that we will see more and more reports of violence in 2SLGBTQIA plus communities as we move forward Um, because being all of who you are uh, means that there are some realities uh, Mm -hmm. that eventually we have to deal with and that could be historical trauma. Uh, It may not be in the current relationship, it may not be until after that relationship is over Um, and then we start to think about how that relationship has impacted the choices that we're making as somebody who navigates the queer community and has children who identify across the spectrum, I think it's really important to just always be reinforcing that if you feel unsafe, you are unsafe. Mm-hmm. And in any relationship, whether that's an intimate relationship, a friend relationship, a work relationship, if you feel compromised in your independence, if you feel feel compromised in terms of your comfort, it's time to think about that and make a different kind of choice for yourself in terms of looking at how do we get safer.
0: Aaron, when many people hear that someone is in an unhealthy or abusive relationship, their first question typically is always, Why don't you just leave? So what are some common but also overlooked reasons as to why women
1: stay in abusive relationships? I think people make assumptions that it's really easy to end relationships. I think people make assumptions that everybody has the same amount of courage um, and the same amount of resilience. I think that people minimize uh, the real or perceived level of risk that happens for victims of violence when they prepare to escape a situation. Uh, I think that there are all kinds of nuances. I think that, you know, uh, it's about the fact that we're in a house ownership together and we have a mortgage and we share bills. It's about the fact that we have children uh, and we don't want to upset our children and, and impact their mental health negatively or cause disruption. It's about the fact that and we have parents and and siblings who have expectations of us it's about um It's about the threat of repercussion and what I could lose uh, if I flee this relationship. It's about the gaslighting around the threats uh, to my family, to my dog, um, to my people, uh, should I make the choice to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's about some of the nuances that we don't see what's happening backstage. We see what's happening front stage and backstage is a very different story. Um, and we minimize the fact that there are love feelings and there are emotions in relationships. So sure, uh, my brain says, I got to get out of this. My heart says, I've invested 15 years and I really wish that, you know, and I really hope that my partner can make a change. And so those emotions that, that we're struggling with and that are going back and forth, in all of that, we've got to deal with the impacts of what's happening with uh, to us. We have to deal with the planning and the stress of trying to figure out where will we go? Mm-hmm. Where will we go in a housing crisis? Where is safe enough for us to go? What, what's my circle of support even look like in terms of who do I talk to and trust with this very deep-rooted um, experience that I know will, res- will respond positively and will help me? Uh, there are How will I take my kids out of school? It's the only school they've known. So how will I explain that to people and make that transition? Uh, everybody loves him. Right. Everybody loves him. Uh, you you know, we hear in the news all the time when there's a especially when there's a murder, suicide, when the neighbors say, you know, they were a really very nice cu- couple in the neighborhood. Because what we see is front stage. You don't well, see backstage. It's
0: oh, Aaron, it's so true. I mean, if anybody remembers the Chris Watts case on Netflix, the uh let me just reference it here the the american murder the family next door did you watch that by any chance uh-huh. horrible absolutely horrible same thing as what you're saying you know great guy nice guy would never do anything like that i mean and look at Shanann watts his his wife she was pregnant with their third child we i mean and and she was really active on social media she was portraying such a happy lifestyle she was showcasing you know all the good parts and that's really what social media is. It's a highlight reel. We don't, we don't take a camera and and showcase and start recording when someone's abusing and and being mean to us. We never do that. And you're not going to share that. We've been, I think, so conditioned to, to keep things private in our homes. We don't share all the bad stuff with people. And I think that when we do, people want to protect us and, and we think negative because, you know, someone might change or, or it's, well, it's not happening anymore. Like that's in the past. And, but it just goes to show you, you know, like. The like the repercussions that can happen when things like this aren't talked about and people don't reach out for help. And you really never know what's going on behind closed doors. It's scary.
1: It's very scary. I think that when you think about what was happening, what happened in Renfrew County in 2015 with the triple femicide, um, I think that the inquest, demonstrated that many many people uh, knew that that person was unwell was not stable was threatening was violent um, and yet he was still able to navigate the community he was still able to be a perpetrator and he was still able to take the lives of three women uh, in less than two hours Mm -hmm. so we know uh, that there's a lot of Backstage, And then we know that the backstage will hit the front stage. And sometimes it immobilizes people. And sometimes people are afraid. What is the risk to me if I support her? Yeah. What is the risk to my kids if I support her? I think that there is you know, a live reality. I think that the general uh, person in the community sees something in the grocery store, right? Everybody talks about when they see the crying, screaming kid in the grocery store and we just, and we watch the parent give in to the kid and give the kid what they want. And we go, Oh my gosh, they should not have done that. Or we see the opposite where the kid just keeps screaming. And then people are like, are you going to do something about your kid? Um, And we judge And, you know, we talk about always being non-judgmental and that's, you know, I'm non-judgmental. We judge every day, all the time. And so the reality is that when I'm in the grocery store and I hear somebody make a derogatory joke about women, I need to inform myself about my own safety in that scenario, should I say something. And I think the general public doesn't appreciate um, harsh Demeaning statements about women. I think the general public does not want to see somebody controlling, uh, screaming at, uh, pushing, and being violent with someone. I think that the unfortunate piece is that we need to offer our community tools and we need to talk to our community about what happens when we're bystanders and how do we intervene as bystanders? What can we do safely? to not create risk for ourselves, and to not increase risk for that victim, Mm
2: -hmm. right?
1: And some of the things that, you know, lots of people do education on, um, and especially someone like Julie Lalonde in our community, uh, is talking about, you know, creating that distraction, right? You know what happens when you drop something? Uh, People are distracted. That could change the outcome of a situation. So you see something happening and you drop something? Distraction, Mm -hmm. Right. You document it. We all have cell phones now. So when you see stuff going on, you could document it. Um, You could direct it. You could say, hey, that's not okay. And you could give a direction, a directive to someone to stop. There are many Ds uh, that one can use to engage. But we need to empower each other and make sure that we give each other permission. In our community, we have a thing called see it, name it, change it and we compare it to uh, back in the day when we were kids and they would teach us what to do if we were on fire if you become on fire you stop drop and roll how many people have been on fire and have had to use stop drop and roll in their life it's so come true. on people never <laughs> right so imagine when we were kids if they would have given us permission to use something like when you see violence you name violence and that's how we can change violence Wow, we might be at a very different place. And the notion of not needing shelters forever, we're the, only, we're the only kind of industry, right, who's looking to put ourselves out of business. But if we could embrace the notion of see it, name it, change it, wow, we could totally change the dialogue. And that, that goes for abusers too, right? What if the abuser says, wow, I think it's me? I think I am making those choices about being demeaning to women and controlling and and texting 14 times with an escalation at the end of it. I I think I need to get some help for that. Wow, Uh, but we don't do that. And so we're building a future and hopefully building a future with our kids and the generation to follow to say, you have permission, you have permission. In fact, you are encouraged when you see violence, you name it and that's the way we can change it.
0: Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We're going to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back.
2: Did you know that there is a wellness and community hub in Canada that provides a variety of services and classes for the whole family? At Rooted Family Wellness Center, we understand that there is no one size fits all when it comes to wellness and health, which is why we offer a wide range of wellness services and classes that cater to your individual journey. These services include massage therapy, chiropractic care, osteopathy, naturopathy, pelvic floor physiotherapy, and mental health services, who also work alongside specialists in nutrition, lactation, sleep, and reflexology. We also offer classes, workshops, and meetups tailored to families at each stage of their birthing and parenting journey. To learn more, please visit our website at rootedfamily.ca so we can help you get rooted in wellness.
0: Are you a woman who's ready to improve your relationship with money so you can start living the life you really want to live? Then you need to join Sand Dollar's Prosperity Circle, which starts this July. Financial counselor Pamela George will help you radically transform your relationship with money by addressing your money beliefs and money mindset. In this six-month group program, Pamela will create a balanced budget for you as well as a debt repayment plan that will not damage your credit. He will help you to create systems for your money that will support you thriving and being in control of your finances. Please visit www.sanddollar.co to learn more and to book a call with Pamela. Spots are limited.
3: Hello friends, Julia here from Ever After Bridal. We are a consignment boutique. We make it our mission to carry a well-stocked inventory of beautiful designer dresses and gowns ranging in sizes 2 to 28. We offer a mixture of both pre-owned and new dresses for every special occasion. Our inventory includes gowns for brides, dresses for bridesmaids and moms. We also carry gowns for prom, grad and galas. We accept new inventory frequently, so there's always new dresses to choose from. Of course, we have all the accessories too. Consignment with Ever After Bridal is easy, you can make your application online prior to visiting us. Once we receive your application, we will notify you of your payout and fees upfront. An appointment is set, you deliver the gown, we take it from there. At Ever After Bridal, our focus is on you. Our bridal consultants offer private appointments for you and up to three of your besties in an intimate setting so that your experience is completely tailored to you. Take a look at our collections on Facebook And Instagram at Ever After Bridal Boutique Perth. Book your appointment on our website at ever after bridal.ca or visit us at 27 Gore Street East in downtown Perth. Your experience with us will make finding your perfect dress a memorable one. Say yes to the dress Ever After Style.
2: Hey, it's Crystal and Cass from from Social Media in Ottawa, specializing in web design and digital marketing. You can find us at socl.ca. And And you're listening to the OV Boss Babes podcast. And you referenced
0: uh, the triple femicide that happened here in Renfrew County, and really, in my opinion, this is my personal opinion. I think that the criminal justice system failed failed those women, and too oftentimes, it it has failed other people. Um, I know that they've made some improvements over the years, but historically, domestic violence wasn't always taken seriously, and sadly enough, it was often dismissed with couples being told just to work it out. So if there if there was a reported call. Police enforcement would show up at the door and uh, and it was disregarded. It was, you know what, just go off and do your own thing. You guys work it out yourselves. And But then too, too many times we often saw the consequences that came after that. And I think that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of responding to reports of sexual assault, domestic violence, and even stalking. Erin, so I want to know your opinion of how you think law enforcement has changed over the years in regards to taking women's calls for help seriously.
1: Slippery slope, that's a slippery slope question. <laughs> um, you know, the police know uh, that they have not always been my favorite people, uh, politically and otherwise. Um, I I think that prior to the Renfrew County uh, triple femicide, uh, what I can tell you is that in Lanark County, uh, we had an inspector and it's about the leadership and it's about the relationships. And we had an inspector who... Um, we dealt with a really difficult situation. Uh, and when the situation o- was over, he approached me and said, could we talk about this? Could we debrief it? And we started to find common ground and we started to put together um, more effective ways for police officers to engage from a trauma-informed approach. And we started to have victim and survivor forums. And we have them regularly now where victims are able to sit in a room with police and justice partners and say, this is what my experience was. And this is how you did well. This is how you didn't do so well. And this is how you need to improve. Uh, I think that that's what needs to continue to happen in law enforcement. I think we need to hear from victims, we need to hear from survivors, we need them to inform the work we're doing because they are the experts of their experience of all of those systems. And I don't disagree with you. I would agree with you that systems failed, uh, those three women. And I think the inquest brought about 86 recommendations as a person who was part of the Renfrew County Inquest team. Um, Uh, and as somebody who gave testimony um, at the inquest, I think that those five jury members did an amazing job at providing us a really great roadmap uh, to make some significant change in the way our systems respond uh, to uh, rates and to incidents of intimate partner violence. Um, and I think that there are family members and community members who are still trying to heal uh, from what happened in 2015. I think it has, ingested all kinds of fear uh, and questioning for victims who are currently living uh, with violence because they've seen um, and watched uh, whether it was you know the W5 or whether it was hearing it on the news or whether it was attending the inquest in person. Uh, they have heard some of those realities and the fears and that 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 really uh, mobilized, a whole culture of fear for lots and lots of victims that we have been undoing for seven years in terms of trying to validate that fear and also reassure that um, the journey can be safer. Uh, In this community, we have a program called the Victim Advocate Program. It's the first one in Ontario. Um, And we have a staff from the shelter who works with the OPP. Uh, They work with the OPP and they respond to every sexual assault, human trafficking, stalking, domestic violence incident, um, and ensure that that victim has support as they navigate the system. Works alongside the police to ensure that the police are continuing to work from a trauma-informed perspective so that victims ultimately have a better experience of the system. The better the experience of victims in the system, the more we'll have other victims saying, yes, I can speak about my my issues because I know I can be believed, uh, and I know I can trust that system. So we got work to do. I agree with you. We got lots of work to do, but the jury gave us a great roadmap, and if the government uh, makes some good decisions to work alongside advocates like myself and many others, I think we can affect change in a huge way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Aaron, it's so true. It's so much more about just being heard anymore now. It's being believed and action being taken. That's the biggest thing. Now, Aaron, I want to really get into Lanark County Interval House and the work that you guys do, um, specifically about the intake process. So what does that look like? And and uh, if a woman and her child needs to flee their home and requires a space to, a place to live immediately, what does your intake process look like?
1: Our intake process starts with your very first crisis call, typically um, people will call on the crisis line, <clears throat> excuse me, which is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, they will talk about what's going on in their situation. They will identify whether or not they're in a safe position to speak at that very moment. Uh, we do an assessment with women uh, to ensure that where they want to be is here for now. Uh, it's a voluntary uh, program. So then when it's determined, yes, uh, we it's a good fit and we want to come there uh, provided that we have space. Uh, we will arrange safe transportation to help that family get here. Uh, We do some safety planning around cell phone and location um, indicators on your cell phone because the worst thing that could happen is you have your location on your cell phone and your abuser is monitoring your every move and you make this escape plan and you get here and within minutes your abuser is also here. Um, So we do some safety planning uh, with women and their kids and we bring them here to live in a communal environment. Um And from intake here, uh, you begin to talk about um, the kind of violence that you experienced, any of your safety and risk issues, any physical um, injuries that you may have, any specific needs you may have, specific needs of your kids. Uh, acclimatized to the environment that you're in. Uh, we are very fortunate to have you know, a kitchen and a playroom in a backyard, like most people have in their homes, but this is not your home. Uh, so having a family acclimatized, and then we have within 24 hours, our children's advocates will, in, will be engaged with mom and kids to make sure that kids are feeling like they're acclimatizing and that they feel like it's okay to be here. Uh, We are often safety planning regularly uh, with families who maybe want to go out to Tim Hortons or want to see grandma and grandpa. Uh, Is that is are they safe people? How do I identify who our safe people are? Uh, And then we bring the, begin the process of, um, Of speaking about healing and speaking about next steps and giving permission uh, for people to have their emotions, to live in that moment of their emotions, to be angry, uh, to land. Uh, And sometimes people take a while. Sometimes, you know, people will land and it takes them a week or so before they're even at a place where they can actually talk about and feel like they have the capacity to honor uh, what they've done in terms of the courage that it took them to leave. Um, And then we certainly help people navigate through court, housing, uh, family law, any of those things um, financial situations we help people navigate all of that in addition to navigating the feelings and the and the process of trying to heal uh, we have partnership relationships with schools with um, family and children's services because life does, have to continue. Um, If you have a job, you know, did you get a leave from your job for a period? How is it gonna be safe for you to return? Do you need to transfer to a different location? All of those pieces are really important steps in the process of taking your life back and saying, yeah, no more, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm taking my power back, I'm taking my life back and I'm moving forward stronger and better. And it takes a while. I mean, you yourself know, you know, we get ourselves in ruts in our own lives where we're not living with violence. And we say, ah, I can't, I can't, I can't. I want to put my head in the sand and forget about it. Uh, And eventually, you know, we have to find our courage to say, you know what I'm going to face today. I'm going to take my power back and I'm going to, I'm going to kick butt and I'm going to move on. And so uh, that's kind of what we hope to inspire and empower women to do when they're here, Uh, their entry point. Point, maybe somewhere else. It may be a community outreach because they're not ready to leave and they don't need to shelter per se, but they really need some counselling and they need to work on their escape plan and they need to work on what's next. They can do that. Uh, some people want to go to group uh, where they're in a group discussion, where they're talking with other women who have had similar experience that validates where we're at in our life and they want to come to group for 10 weeks. Uh, we have a variety of ways that people can uh, get engaged. And it's all about your entry point, right? Uh, I don't want to not I don't want to finish this interview and not have spoken about our as good as new store our as good as new store has been around at 33 bridge street since almost as long as the shelter. Um, and sometimes that's the entry point. The entry point is as good as new. It's our store that's run by volunteers that's nurtured by community and we sell gently used items and we really try to promote recycling and reuse and, uh, kind of recreation of of the way that we see clothes and items and in many ways that's what we're doing with women and kids right? we're helping them rediscover themselves and repurpose themselves and recycle all the good parts of themselves to move forward and our store is a storefront and people know that that store belongs to LCIH um, and it contributes about $90,000 a year to running our programs and it's an amazing entry point, right? People can go there and clients go there and get clothes at no cost to them and we keep our price list very very low uh, because we recognize that there are people in community who have not yet acknowledged what's happening for them or who are living a very healthy life but are living in poverty Mm -hmm. Um, and so getting clothes and having access and it's quite a it's quite a hub of conversation and action and and it's one of my favorite parts of of my time is when I'm able to go into as good as new and hang out Uh, because it's like a little coronation street uh, in a small town uh, where, you know, there are characters and there are people who share their stuff and everybody comments on what everybody else is trying on. And, Oh, I heard you were looking for this. Look what I found. And um, it's just quite a community. And I think that all the parts, you know, all the working parts of the agency and all of the staff, That makes the action, right? That creates what you're talking about is that action. And we're always moving in some form of action to eradicate the issues of violence and always working on communicating and empowering others to recognize it and to say, yeah, that's okay. You know what? I have a neighbor, Uh, yada, 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 yada. working with senior community. I mean, let's think about our aging population. Many people survive lots of violence um, and they're in the senior community. So lots of work for us to do, but I would encourage anybody who's in town uh, to check out as good as new, best prices, great quality items, and you're contributing to making a difference in the lives of survivors of violence.
0: Yeah. I do still have several more questions for you before we wrap this up. Um, and one and specifically is about, about your building because women's shelters are a place for temporary protection and support for women escaping domestic violence. And I noticed that the building address is not public. So how do you and your staff keep your location safe and secure so that only women and children requiring protection are aware of where it's located and and that they can't be found?
1: Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I mean, we're a small town, so you know lots of people do know that this is the place where the women go uh they may not know it's a shelter um, but we really believe in the anonymity and the privacy that women who are survivors have a right to. Uh, and it starts with not publicizing the address so that women know that this place is a place that um, is a step towards being safer immediately. Uh, so we don't publicize our address. Other communities do. Uh, we decided that we didn't want to do that in terms of that anonymity and the privacy. Um, and how do we protect that? Uh, we asked, people not we ask people to sign confidentiality agreements who come here who are invited here service providers who come are asked to sign confidentiality agreements um Clients are asked to sign confidentiality agreements. Um, if anybody is coming here or sending items here, we talk about the confidentiality of the agency and we have a P.O. box uh, so that things are not always arriving at the door because that can also be unsafe. Uh, we do have cameras that monitor uh, the perimeter of our building um, and it, there are cameras in the driveway and we do have to think about ultimately the safety and the risk that could come to folks. But we really work hard at having people. Um, we re- kind of reframe it, right? It's not about you not knowing the address. It's about you respecting the privacy of those who access it. Um, and so we we try really hard not to get into the semantics of why and why not. Um, we talk more about the protection and the right and privacy. Um, and I think that, you know, everybody gets to it differently in various communities. Some communities have it posted on the grass and some people don't. And I think our neighbors obviously are our best... Um, determinants of of our safety, Um, but certainly we work really hard with community to keep this location confidential, uh, keep it as safe as possible. And I know that once we had um, a murder-suicide in our community and the media had called and they were coming here to meet me to do an interview, and uh, they pulled up into the side parking lot and our neighbours started yelling at them. Our neighbors started calling the crisis line, saying there are reporters in the parking lot and get off their parking lot, leave them alone. Uh, They need to be safe. You need to respect them. The neighbor had no idea that we knew they were coming.
0: Right. But that's important, though, that they uh, that they recognize that immediately. And we're looking out for you guys, you know,
1: everywhere. Right. Like if you think about it in your own neighborhood, you have your neighbors and neighbors are nosy. Like, let's just face it. Neighbors are (laughs) nosy. Uh, They're looking out the windows all the time. They know what cars are coming and going. They know who got a new car. They know who's got company. Um, (laughs) Neighbors know stuff. And Mm -hmm. in rural communities, you know, it's also very interesting because news travels really, really fast. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's the other reality is we have to empower our neighbors and we have to be having discussions with, with the people that we surround ourselves with So that if they see something, that they know it's okay to say something uh, in the safest way possible, right? Deliver the pie to the front door as a disruption to what's going on inside. That creates a disruption. Thank you, neighbor, for thinking about doing that, right? Um, Mitigate the risk.
0: Erin, you've talked a lot about different kind of signs that we can look for with friends and family members, but I kind of want to get into a little bit about colleagues as well, especially those that are still working hybrid or or even remote jobs where we don't even get to see them. I mean, I know I work for the government. I, I'm on Zoom a lot of the time and and we have the option of leaving our cameras off. And as nice as that is, it's, it also can be a little dangerous too, you know, because we don't get to see each other's faces. And, and create that emotional connection with uh, with our colleagues. How do we navigate that?
1: I think that violence prevention in the workplace is, is something that's required. Uh, not only is it required by law, but the notion of checking in um, is really an important part of our work. Uh, the isolation, uh, the impact of the last three years, the disconnect... Um, that people have had with their friends, with their colleagues, it is a critical of importance to be checking in. And so to be knowing that you either have a buddy or you have a manager or a supervisor or somebody who is your check-in um, and having a regular check-in, some people could call it supervision, having that person to check in with so that we get the pulse. Uh, I think creating activities that can bring people together, even online. So, you know, we once did a Candle making workshop together. Uh, it was online. People joined from their Zoom from home, and we had a social time together, uh, despite the fact that we were all in different places. And we really have worked hard to stay connected. And your workplace culture, whether you work for the government or you work for a uh, corporate or wherever you work, your workplace culture is really significant now, right? Because of the hybrid, because of the isolation, because we don't know what's happening, it is really important for people to tap into the importance of workplace culture and how we are reaching out. What are the provisions? How are we communicating? How do we validate and make sure people understand that violence prevention in the workplace extends to your home uh, when you are doing your job from home? And you have the right and we have the responsibility to ensure that we're open about that communication and that where there is a disruption or an issue, that we are there to address it and protect those rights. Uh, It's a really hard piece uh, to navigate, but it is something that is of critical importance and people need to know who can they check in with, who is their go-to person, and how is the agency, the government, the company, how are we providing in this this hybrid time of we want production, we want production, we want people to be working hard and we still want things to be, the outcomes to be steady and we want to see success. We need to be looking at the other side of that in terms of how are we reducing isolation, how are we speaking to isolation and what are the policies and procedures we're putting in place to make sure that we have a pulse on what's going on in hybrid offices uh, across the country.
0: Aaron, we all have that same common goal, and that's to reduce the rate of domestic violence in our communities. And we all have that responsibility to change the culture around gender-based violence. And that's, like you were saying earlier, by becoming an ally and an active bystander. Don't just stand to the side, record like you said, you know, on your video and and speak out and 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 ask somebody if they need help if they need help. Um, so Aaron, I re- I really, really appreciate you you taking the time out of your day to have this important conversation with me and for the great continuous work that the Lanark County Interval House continues to do for for Lanark County and beyond and, and all of the communities surrounding it. So so thank you to you and your team and uh and, and for being that voice and continuous ally for women.
1: Uh you are most welcome. I am honored. Uh, to be part of this. I am honored to be a boss babe. Uh, You know, I think about Lee Allen Hayes, who was my boss babe from back in the day. And I I just want to say that I think that, uh, you know, from Sam LaPrey to you, to Bob Perot, to Sandra Plagakis, the media uh, is definitely stepping up. The media is making a difference and saying, this is newsworthy. We need to be part of the solution and we're going to do what we can. And I have never been so grateful Uh, for navigating and living in the community I live in with all of you around us doing such a great job bringing light to these issues and really demonstrating your commitment to being our allies and to using your platform to make sure other people are hearing it. So thank you and much gratitude to all of you.
0: All right, Erin. So I do have one final question for you. And I know you just listed off a couple boss babes there. One of my favorites is Sandra Plagakis as well. That That woman is just like power to her, like preach and be loud and be proud. I just love her so much. But if you could just pick one, Erin, who is one local boss babe that inspires you daily that you think everyone should know about?
1: I think that the boss babe I'm going to choose is Sam LaPrade. I think that Sam LaPrade of Ottawa Valley City News has... Demonstrated that she's gonna be a boss till the bitter end. And as long as she's got a microphone in her hand, she's gonna challenge the powers that be. She's gonna have the difficult conversations and she's gonna push for justice. Uh, and that's a boss babe that that we all need to have in our life. And we all need to. Sandra Plagakis is one of uh one of my uh one of my friends, and I really respect her as well. Uh, she is a kick-ass boss babe as well. Uh, Sam Laprade is just uh, somebody who honestly has embraced the issues of IPV and is pushing at every angle and I really really appreciate that Uh, there are so many boss babes that I have been so fortunate uh, to have in my circle if people don't know Pam Cross they should know her if people don't know Kirsten Mercer you should know her uh, because they are making a difference and impacting the lives of women across this province and I'm so grateful uh, to be part of that community so those are my boss babe picks for today
0: love it and Aaron, finally, how can we get involved, donate, or even volunteer our time, or even becoming a board member uh, with the Leonard County Interval
1: House? I would suggest you check us out on our socials. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, and if you go to lcih.org and you look at opportunities or want to get involved, uh, you could become a volunteer. You could become a board member. Uh, you could make a donation. We have a big donation button on our on our page, and you could, you could certainly engage that way. Um, and if you're not close to us in terms of this community, whatever your community is that you're in, find your local anti-violence agency and connect and if that means you're going to go to the next take back the night march in your community for the very first time that is taking action if it means you're going to read the 86 uh, recommendations or you're going to listen to them on lake 88 that is action Um, and i appreciate every action because with every action we have we have a growing unity of people who are doing the work together
0: again thanks so much to aaron for speaking with me and being a part of the ob boss babes podcast. If you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship and needs safety, shelter, or support, please call Lanark County's Interval House's 24-7 hotline at 1-800-267-7946. For those in Renfrew County seeking support, we have the Bernadette McCann House, and you can find that information at www.wssbmh.org. Thank you again to everybody for being a part of OV Boss Babes. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at OV Boss Babes. And we publish new episodes every Monday and Wednesday. So be sure to stay tuned and follow along and subscribe if you are not already on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now.